Good afternoon, everyone. Good evening, depending on where you are. I am Marsha Guerriere, founder of Her Sweet Spot, and I'm back again with an another amazing executive leader for our Herbize Salon Talks. I am so excited to bring you guys this conversation about managing challenges for women in transition. We're all at some point in transition in our life, and I want to introduce you to our guest uh, salon talk speaker today. Is it I Ika? Isa. Isa. Mm -hmm. Core Robinson is a financial advisor and resident director for the Merrill Lynch office in Jersey City, New Jersey. In her 24 years with the company, she has held roles in service, mutual fund operations, product development, and marketing leadership. Market leadership. Today, she focuses her efforts on helping women in transition, engaging them in personal and meaningful conversations around family, financial goals, and retirement. Having entered financial services at a time with very little representation of female and Latina advisors and leaders, she has mentored young women and encouraged them to pursue the, these career paths. Aixa is an avid believer in the power of network through both personal and professional alliances with female executives and community leaders. Her accolades go on and on and on. She is a native of New Jersey and of Latin descent. She is uh, she brings the same passion to the programs in inner city youth that encourage education and professional development. And she, I should say you, have a brief tenure as a substitute teacher and you learn the value of adult mentoring to children in these communities. So you are our expert resident in helping people transition. And I'm sure you're helping the youth transition from their adolescence to their adulthood. So at every stage you're helping women. So thank you for being here to support and help us too. Thank you, Marsha. I'm very happy to be here. It's such a pleasure. I always enjoy speaking with you and we're always just getting like some good conversations in. I, you, you have such a great background in financial services, right? And yet, can you tell me where, and, and yet you, you, you have this passion for helping and teaching. So, mm -hmm. Where did it all come from? How did you start in financial industry yet in the finance industry yet have such a passion for teaching? Were you uh, uh, going down teaching? No, actually, I stumbled on it by just by chance. Um, when uh, I'm my background, I'm of Cuban American descent, first generation. My parents came from Cuba in the 1950s. So um, born born in New Jersey fluently bilingual because my parents uh, had limited education, uh, limited language skills, uh, grew up very blue collar in Newark. And I'm actually very proud of my Newark roots because I think it shaped a lot of who I am today. It makes you pretty pretty tough when, uh, when you grow up in the city. Yep. And um, so I went to parochial school and an all girls parochial school um, with a very small one actually. My graduating class was only 93 girls but it was predominantly African-American and Latina girls. So uh, again, we get some pretty thick skin. We, we were uh, very supportive of each other. We had teachers that were very supportive of us. 
um, and really encouraged us as as women to kind of you know think out of the box. And mm -hmm. uh, I just had a, a recent recollection of um, the fact that one of our teachers had put us into advanced math classes as early as sophomore year. She was teaching us trigonometry and calculus, which when you think back to the 70s and 80s, women were not necessarily encouraged to take no. to take math. Yeah. So um, I think that that probably was the beginning of somebody encouraging us to to you know take on these kinds of roles in, in math and in technology and in finance. Um, but the way I stumbled on finance was purely by chance. I, I actually attended Rutgers University in Newark. I started out thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. So I went in as a pre-law and uh, then I realized that I just didn't want to read all those books. And very quickly did I realize that law required hours upon hours of reading. It sounds, like my, it sounds like my transition from nursing, wanting to be a pediatrician to uh, business. I, I had to learn science and I knew that wasn't for me. <laughs> well, I discovered very early on that, that I was not going to be the person that wanted to read for 12 hours a day. Yeah. Um, but I loved my accounting and my finance classes. And uh, it's, it's sort of something that by sophomore year of college, I realized that my more of my aptitude was in math. Yeah. And um, through a um, family friend, family acquaintance, I got my first job working for Merrill Lynch in New York City. And we were actually just before the broadcast, we were talking a little bit about that. I worked in downtown Manhattan. Uh, I was all of 19 years old. I was going to college at night. Um, you know, finances made it difficult for me to stay in school full time. So I, I was working for Merrill Lynch during the day and going to school at night. Right. And um, it, it just my career from there just sort of uh, just grew. I, I discovered that it was what I enjoyed doing. I loved the the vibrancy of Wall Street, um, especially back in those days when it was in the, the late 80s where, you know, Wall Street was booming. So um, it was just a really exciting time to be there, especially, uh, you know, in your your uh, your early 20s. Um, so I kind of stumbled on finance purely by chance. But when I um, got married and uh, had my first child, uh, I decided that my, well, I, I was strongly encouraged by my family to stay home with my children for a little while. And I think that was because my mom was worked her whole life. And she said, if I'd had the opportunity to stay home, I would have. And, and I was fortunate enough to have that opportunity. Um, but being that I kind of got restless and, and enjoyed, um, getting out of the house and doing something where I felt productive, I stumbled on substitute teaching. And that's what I did when my children were little as I went to school with them, I took them with me, I taught, I loved it, I loved being around kids. Um, and uh, it, it sort of became a passion of mine for those years that I was, uh, uh, that I was staying home with my children as I was substitute teaching. And then until I re-entered uh, the finance industry when they were a little bit older. So you, you, your whole background embodies transitioning, whether it was from uh, uh, mommyhood or, or, or non-mommyhood to parenthood, right? And, and then from industry to industry, job, out of the workforce, into the workforce. It's, it's no wonder that that is your main driver and focus and transitioning from thinking you would do law into the, the math, I loved math as well coming, growing up and also had very good experiences in school with um, uh, teachers and, and, and those helping me 
um, see what my gifts and my talents were. So mm -hmm. I, I love teachers for that. So what does it truly mean to be a woman in transition? Um, well, to your point, um, I think I've experienced just about every transition that most women do. I think women experience transitions differently and more often than men. And, um, you know, from, from starting into, you know, marriage where you, you struggle with the, the balance and the autonomy that you try to maintain and your, your identity that you're trying to maintain um, as, as part of a relationship, um, parenthood, um, and, and then in my case, later on in life, divorce. So, you know, changing careers, um, going from, from single to married to divorced. Uh, many of my friends have gone through the same experience. Um, and also, if you look at it statistically, women outlive men. So yeah. I already have female friends that are experiencing widowhood. Um, so I, I think most women don't uh, appreciate just how many times you have to sort of stumble and get back up. Right. And how many times you have to figure out how to get by on your own. And you may not have realized that all of a sudden you have to get by on your own. So um, I, the whole concept of women in transition really talks to, you know, taking ownership of what you have to do next when right. all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation that you really hadn't planned for. Right. And that's usually the the the. the the issues that you don't plan and we don't plan enough for transitions for the next stages and the, the what ifs of life. Right. What are some of the challenges women face when they're transitioning? You know, you mentioned going from um, married to being divorced when you're in a non leadership role and you're trying to transition to a leadership role. I think that's one of the in, in the workforce. That's one of the toughest challenges for women especially when you form those alliances as colleagues and then you become a, a, a person in leadership. Yeah. What are some of the challenges you've seen or um, and heard women talk about? Well, I think one of the things that I have, I've, I've sort of come to appreciate in retrospect is that I think women uh, have a tendency to feel like we have to be a little bit tougher than men. Um, we, we are a little bit more concerned with credibility and with respect. So um, that becomes, I think, something that you have to manage through because I think women tend to naturally want to be liked. You know, that's more so than men. We want to be liked and we are liked by our peers. And all of a sudden you have to make that transition into a role where you're not, you're not always going to be liked. Um, so that's that's difficult. But I think what I've learned to appreciate is that respect is far more important than being liked. Mm -hmm. And respect is not just being respected professionally, but it's being res being respected personally. So I think when you're when you're authentic, when you're sincere, um, you know, when I spend time talking to people and, and genuinely care about what they're experiencing and genuinely want to help them, I earn their respect. And that I think is is the biggest transition uh, into leadership is having people come to respect you, not just as a, as a leader, but as a, as a person. Right. Um, and it sort of buffers, buffers some of the unpleasant side of what you have to do because people understand that you're always doing it with the best of intentions. Now that brings me to, to thinking about raising these next generation of leaders. Mm -hmm. 
is it, you know, I, I love when I talk to young girls and young women and they are unapologetic. <laughs> are you finding that the next generation of young female leaders are already kind of reversing all the things that we've been through in terms of teaching us not to, you know, to be liked rather than to, to be a good leader? What, what are your thoughts of, what are you finding with the young girls now? That That's actually a great question. Um, I've made the same observation. I am absolutely in awe of some yeah. of the young women that I talk to. Uh, they're, they're incredibly confident. Um, it, it really, I, I see that and it makes me really, really happy. I think they've had a different upbringing perhaps. So they, they come into the workforce a little bit more prepared to, um, to challenge themselves, to challenge others and to be respected. Um, but what I will say is I think that there's still a cultural bias there. Um, so it's, while that is true of a lot of the girls and the young women that I, that I talk to and that I've worked with, I think there's still a cultural bias. I, I think you will still see African-American and Latina women that are a little bit more submissive, mm -hmm. um, that perhaps we've been taught that if we work really, really hard, someone is going to notice. Yeah. Um, and I always tell people that's the, that's the one lesson I've learned is they don't always notice. Yeah. And, and when we're waiting for somebody to tap us on the shoulder and say, good job, you know, here's a promotion. Good job. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, your competition is speaking up and they're being much more, um, much more overt and much more aggressive. So therefore, while we work hard to wait for somebody to tap us on the shoulder and notice, um, other people are, are making sure they get noticed and are being a lot more vocal about it. So I think that they're while that's true of this generation, I still see the cultural bias yeah. um, that that concerns me, and that's why I do tend to focus a lot on um, on the young women that I grew up with in in the inner cities, which are the African American and Latina women, because I think they still don't have that kind of support at home. Perhaps right. they don't have the kind of parenting that says, you know, go out there and mm -hmm. and, and, and make sure you get noticed. Um, right. So I think there is still a little bit of a lag there. I think you just answered my next question, which was gonna, I was going to say, you know, with a demanding job as a financial advisor, you decided to take on such a, it could be challenging, especially working with young adults that we need to teach how to embrace success, how to embrace tooting your own horn, a book that I'm actually um, re reading now uh, for my own edification and for my own self, right? And why was this so important to you? If you could elaborate on that, because I think you just answered it, though. Um, I think because that's that was essentially how I was brought up. And I was very I was actually very fortunate that I had people that did notice. And I and I am so grateful when I look back on some of my mentors and some of the people I worked with that took notice of the fact that I worked very hard and was very deserving of opportunities. Um, so I think part of it is paying that forward a little bit. Um, but it is also um, in the last, like I said, the last probably few years or so, I've come to really realize that everything's moving very quickly. There's a whole lot of competition out there. Um, and women don't have to, um, we don't have to necessarily be uh, so, so, so what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, we've been trying to do this very, very uh, persuasively as mm -hmm. opposed to overtly. 
Right. And um, I read a, a really good article one time and it talked about the ask. What is your ask? Yeah. And I've learned that you have to ask what for what you want. So while I kept thinking if I skirt around the issue and maybe somebody will figure out what I want, now I just ask for what I want. Um, yeah. And I think so that's it is the number one thing and exercise I do with uh, the members of her sweet spot is practicing the ask because it has to be practiced. It's not yeah. something that comes natural to women because mm -hmm. we are taught not to ask. We're taught, especially uh, uh, minority women, cultural women, women of different cultures and backgrounds. The first thing we learn is when we get somewhere, don't ask. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's that, ingrained in us. Yeah. That was an aha moment for me. It really, really was an aha moment for me. And I think that it came late in my career, um, you know, in part because, again, I had I had really good good colleagues that, that didn't always need to be prodded. But every once in a while, you work with people that don't get the message. You have to raise your hand and, you know, yell and jump around a little bit and say, hey, notice me. Yeah, uh, so, so I, kind of, I kind of learned that. I think it is a lesson that I missed also growing up in the fin space and, and not and, and expecting for people to see my contributions and not being that overt person. And and I will agree that it has held me back because mm -hmm. the, the person waving the flag is the one who usually gets to the top faster. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is, again, we're going into my next question, right? For women trying to break that glass ceiling and transition into leadership roles, right? What type of skills do you think they need um, in order for them to advance? And what are some of the things that they should do to help them? Um, I think, I, I will say, I used to feel, and again, I, I'm, I'm, I've been in the industry for many, many years, more than the 24 when you consider that that gap and that I was home for a while or taught for a while. But I used to feel like you had to really um, compete on a man's level or mm -hmm. compete like a man would. And I think that was just because it was the way you got noticed. So right. you had to sort of be assertive and um, just communicate in the same way. And I think now what I've come to realize is that we're, women are different. We communicate differently. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not apologetic about that anymore. I think it's actually quite good. And, and I think we're catching up to that. We're catching up to the fact that women are effective leaders because we are more communicative. We're more empathetic. Uh, we're more organized. We have all of these skills in leadership that tend to really make for successful leaders that perhaps our male counterparts don't have. So we're different. We're wired very differently. And mm -hmm. someone is finally noticing that we kind of have some very inherent qualities as women that are actually more beneficial for leaders um, than not. So, I and agree. I think it has to do with empathy. It has to do with, um, you know, earning that respect, feel, feeling like people can see through it's not just about the work. It's about, you know, your, who you are as a person, your authenticity. And I, 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 I so agree with that. I think what also has happened is that the employees or the employees are looking for different types of management too. I think mm -hmm. we finally come to a place where it's no longer that Wolf of Wall Street, uh, a boiler room type of um, uh, energy. Mm -hmm. People 
want to come to work and be vulnerable, have a good day, bad day, and need that leadership where they could be, you know, themselves and have and receive empathy. So I think yes. it's it's both a shift in um, primarily what people need in leaders and and now realizing that women are actually better leaders. Yeah. 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 And I and I do think that a lot of it is where we're much more encouraged now to be vocal of, about our opinions. And I know that that's also something that I find has changed dramatically in the last probably five to 10 years yeah. is I, you know, I was always the quiet one. I remember my one of my earliest mentors used the expression better to keep silent and be thought the fool, the fool than to speak and remove all doubt. He oh, wow. hung that over my head. And he always said that to me. So I always was very cautious in speaking up. And as I got older, and I think just as the environment and the culture changed in business, mm -hmm. I realized that no, you, know, you, you do have to speak up. You want people to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Um, and once I sort of made that pivot uh, in my career, it has it served me well. Yeah, that it, it surely has. So, you know, here at Her Sweet Spot, we're all about women uh, uh, having two spaces that they, you know, keep keep sacred, and I'm always excited to meet an executive leader that's open about their passion projects and what they do outside of the workplace. I think, and it might be generational, but I think so many women that are members and that I speak to are afraid to bring their whole self to work, meaning they they won't they have side passions and side businesses and they're afraid to let that part of themselves shine you know what advice would you give to other women that are you know in this space where they have a dual life and, and really want to bring their whole self to work how can we do that you made such a great impact and you brought that to your your job and you are part of uh, um those type of uh initiatives with merrill lynch in-house but it really came from your own personal passion outside how how what advice would you give to women that need to have that same life yeah um it's again it's it's been sort of I, maybe it's just the phase of my career that i'm in I, I really do feel like i'm at a stage of my career now where i i'm much more comfortable in my own skin mm -hmm. um but i had always felt very very passionate about making sure that we did not leave behind so many women and kids in the inner city. Um, I saw the privilege. I, in finance, it is predominantly people of privilege. Right. And I just felt like I, I was grateful. I was appreciative of every every advantage that I got from my colleagues and my peers and my mentors and my bosses. The list goes on and on. I, I felt compelled to pay it forward. So I was doing that. I've been doing that now for several years where I, you know, I enjoy going into the schools. I volunteer with Junior Achievement. Um, I volunteer with an organization called NJ Leap, uh, which is also a high school development program for for uh, for high school students in inner cities, and a um, couple of other organizations through my internal uh, network here at Bank of America, which is the Hispanic Leaders Association. So through them, we have connected with a number of organizations that I completely uh, have embraced. And, and it's, it's my feel-good stuff. It's my pay-it-forward feel-good stuff. Yeah. But what's interesting now is that I've been using it, um, or I shouldn't say I've been using it, but I've been asked to participate in so many more 
of the DNI conversations at my company as a result. Right. Uh, and that was very recent. Someone actually wanted to speak to someone that knew what it was like to go to, you know, these schools. That, right. So, so it, and how do we reach that population? How do we want them to stay in school and come join us in, in, in our industry? Right. Um, and women in particular as well, because we're so underrepresented. So right. it was purely by chance that a lot of people were in my organization started to embrace DNI and just and that is as I'm sure you know very recent. Mm -hmm. um, but when that happened, they realized that my network for years outside of the firm was completely embracing the development of young people into roles like what I do. Yeah, that that's so. I'm always so. Um, enamored and or feeling like wow i could sit and talk to you and learn from you all day long with that the work that you're doing i find i think it's so important that we help the next generation particularly our uh, um kids of of uh black and brown latina caribbean backgrounds and you're, you're right, it's, it starts with the things that they're missing from, from home. And if we can bring them in the industry, all the more better for our industry in mm -hmm. the long run, right? So mm -hmm. I appreciate you for all that you're doing to help young women in this field. For, for women of a certain age, currently transitioning or thinking about the transition, can you give us that one solid advice before we let you go that they should hold on to, they should be thinking about for the summer or what is some advice you can give for someone who's currently in that transition phase of their life? Um, I think you have to embrace it and um, step out of your comfort zone. I, I think that I've just gotten comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. So uh, I, I think overcoming that fear of change, that, that fear of, of the unknown, um, it's very, it, it, it's, it's a really wonderful feeling when you conquer that. Yeah. And, and it's an empowering feeling when you conquer that. So uh, I always try to encourage people to look at, at, at a, those, those times in your life when you've, you're either switching jobs or you, you've lost a spouse or you find yourself on your own or whatever the case may be, changing mm -hmm. careers. It's uncomfortable and it's, and, and it's going to be uncomfortable, but that's not a negative thing. I think that's actually a positive thing. I, right. I, I think when you overcome that, there's a, there's just that feeling of accomplishment that gives you that much more confidence to make the next move to just to embrace the next change they say god always makes you uncomfortable before he makes the greatest impact in, in your life so take the challenges on and uh you know it's gonna be a time where you're gonna have it's okay to kind of sit in the, the the sadness of whatever transition or hurt or pain or whatever it is and then just take it on head on yeah and, right. and it, it's like i said it's it's it feels really really good to come out of that and you do i mean i know it's cliche but you come out stronger yeah I, and i have felt that throughout my life i i felt like i've always come out on the other side a little bit stronger 
so you know, you turn a negative into a positive. You have to you have to do it that way. Absolutely. How can we support any of your initiatives, any of the young girls that you mentor or programs that you're a part of? Um, I just think that the power of networking has been tremendous for me because I have a virtual, I feel like I have so many different virtual support groups. I have real support groups, I have real people around me, yes. but in the last few years, especially during, during COVID, Wow. Um, I just really kind of decided I don't want to sit home by myself. I want to connect with people. I need to connect with people. What I do is a people business. Right. Um, so I, I think the power of your network and making sure you you really, again, put yourself out there, introduce yourself, meet people, walk into a room by yourself. Um, I tell people all the time, walk into a room by yourself and yeah. just walk up to people and introduce yourself. Um, and especially for young women who are probably not necessarily comfortable doing that, that is a lifelong skill to, to be able to, to know that, you know, you, you're going to walk into a room and, um, and just feel comfortable in, in an uncomfortable situation. But networking is incredibly important. You never know who's going to help you and who you can help. Right. And, um, I've had great friendships that I've built over time that all started with, you know, an introduction somewhere or, you know, a friend of a friend. So and it's a two way street. Like you said, you never know who you can help. And, and age is not a factor. I have so many people that are younger than me that have helped me are still helping me. Yes. And I think it's so important that you, you really, you know, I once told, um, it's a measure of keeping, someone to your right and to your left and and making sure you're the in-between person. You always need people that you believe are above you and, and you want to reach to their height and then someone that needs you as the person and inspiration to build up to where you are because everyone is watching. Yeah. I'm a firm believer that in in, in good things come to, to, uh, to people that do good things in karma. I, and I, I just really do believe, I, I do a lot of, I call it pro bono work, even though I'm not a lawyer, but it's basically sure, you know, I have an hour, I have two hours, I have a morning that I just give, I give to people who need it, um, even if it's just to talk or provide some advice or, or anything. But um, I, I just feel like it comes back to you. I, 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 good things come back to people who, who, who can spend that kind of time helping other people. So I'm a firm believer in that. And, and it's held true in, in, uh, in my life. So I absolutely agree. That's one of the principles inside of her sweet spot is the give, ask and, and give and ask for what you need, but also give and share your own resources that will help someone else to. That's wonderful. I agree. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate you for giving me this time. Oh, and thank you. I hope this conversation has given a little bit to you as well. It has. Thank you so much for being yeah. here. And uh, we appreciate you guys. You guys know how I like to end each broadcast. When we empower each other, we all rise. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks.